Jesus begins his ministry by showing more than telling. This particular gospel is sometimes referred to as the book of signs. And the whole narrative flow of the gospel is framed around these seven signs, changing water into wine and healing the royal official's son and healing the paralytic and feeding the 5,000 and walking on water and healing the blind man and raising Lazarus. The signs aren't just miracles. But through them, we are shown the meaning of Jesus as both the Son of Man with all the human temptations and emotions and the Son of God who inspires celebration and who instigates confrontation. These signs guide us in our journeys because again and again, Jesus shows us where to go even if it means causing disruption, even if it means breaking the status quo, even if it means going significantly out of one's way. Shortly after revealing his glory in the first sign, which was changing water into wine at Cana, Jesus enters the Jewish temple in Jerusalem as an angry prophet. He is outraged by what he sees. In the Jewish law, to make a proper sacrifice, one had to present an unblemished dove or animal, impossible for the many pilgrims who came from a distance. When a person went to purchase such an animal at a cost, which could be quite dear, their Roman coins would be denied since those coins carried the image of Caesar and were considered idolatrous. So you'd have to exchange those for temple coins with the temple tax at the money changer's table. And the savvy businessman perpetuated the system, and everyone had grown used to it, stopped questioning the status quo, stopped seeing the injustice, the profiteering, the corruption, until Jesus came to town, acting like no ordinary pilgrim at all. And what Jesus found in Jerusalem was the court of the Gentiles that outer court, the only place in the temple where Gentiles could in fact pray, right at the entrance. And it, he found that it looked and it sounded like an open market instead of a place of prayer. And with holy disruption, passionate protest, and the dramatic flipping of tables, he cried, stop making my father's house a marketplace. And make no mistake, he's overturning an oppressive system. And they know it. And they ask him for a sign to prove that he has any standing to do this. And in response to the leaders who asked to be shown a sign, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And they all think he's talking about the building. Buildings are always so important. And this building was that massive reconstruction project Herod the Great began in 20 BC to win favor with the Jewish people, and it was still unfinished 46 years later. The temple was the beating heart of Judaism, the center of worship and music and politics and society, national celebration and mourning, 
But above all else, it was the place where Israel's God, Yahweh, had promised to live in the midst of the people. How could something so grand be be destroyed and be rebuilt in three days? But the temple Jesus spoke about wasn't about a building at all. It was was about his own body. It was about the beating heart of incarnate love. That body that would be humiliated and beaten and nailed to a cross and then raised from the dead, flipping the tables of everything we thought we knew about the finality of death itself. He is the true temple, the word made flesh, the place where the glory of God has chosen to make a dwelling. Again and again, Jesus shows us the way. Several years ago, my husband set off on a walking pilgrimage called the Way of St. James, the Camino de Santiago. Pilgrims on the way can take one of dozens of routes, I suppose there are, to get to Santiago de Compostela. And traditionally, as with most pilgrimages, the Way of St. James begins at one's home and ends at the pilgrimage site. But over the centuries, a few of the routes became considered the main ones. During the Middle Ages, the route was highly traveled, and then came the Black Death, and then came the Protestant Reformation, and then came political unrest in 16th century Europe, and it declined. And by the 1980s, only a few hundred pilgrims per year registered to go. But since then, it's attracted all sorts of people who want to go on a spiritual pilgrimage, who want to feel something, who want to pray with with their feet. We want to follow this way. Tom took the route that begins in Portugal, and the paths were uncrowded. It's not a popular route, but still he would meet up with a few other pilgrims and being an extrovert, strike up conversations everywhere he went. There were times, he said, when the right path was unclear, marked with a scallop shell that is the symbol of St. James, Pilgrims would find themselves chatting, looking around, and realizing they didn't know where to go next. And they'd stop and, and, and kind of search a little bit until someone spotted the shell, and they, they go off together again. There was a path. There were maps. There were phones these days. There were guiding symbols. There were even other pilgrims. But despite all of that, the way could still be unclear. And that uncertainty at the heart of the pilgrim's journey is familiar to anyone who embarks on a life of genuine Christian faith. It's always there. That uncertainty that you don't know exactly where God is going to lead you. That necessity to trust. American Trappist priest and monk Thomas Merton wrote in the 1960s, he said, my Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. 
I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Remember at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, the way it starts, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Word through whom all things were made. We have been shown the way so many times. We have been shown it through the beauty of creation, through the giving of God's law, including the Ten Commandments, through the lonesome voices of the prophets for justice, through the incarnation of God and Jesus, through the gift of the Holy Spirit indwelling, and through the church. We have read our Bibles and heard our sermons and sung our songs and marched our march to advocated for justice and righteousness, which is often disruptive and very different from the status quo. Yet, like the Apostle Paul says, sin is ever before us, and we still lose our way. Our hearts become like the loud temple court that Jesus got so angry about a place where God is meant to dwell, but instead becomes cluttered with trade-offs and compromises, with exchanging truth for lies that hurt other people, with silence when we should be speaking. And it's the heart of our society, too, that becomes cluttered with injustice and corruption and profiteering and way too many barriers to those who are on the outer courts, the margins, the most vulnerable. But before we go raising our symbolic whips like we're Jesus, before we use our tongues to clear out someone else's sin, to judge someone else's racket, to put ourselves there in that place of the Savior, we need to look within. On any given occasion, I am a sinner always in need of my table-turning Jesus to come and set me right. My friends in the AA program talk about the fourth step in addiction recovery, which is make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Fearless does not mean comfortable. Fearless means feeling that fear and discomfort and pain and creating your inventory despite those feelings. It means remembering all the ways that you have wronged people in your life by taking an honest look at what you've done and what you've left undone, what you've ignored out of ignorance or privilege or laziness. Maybe you've seen an image of the Sankofa. I think that's the right way to say that. Sankofa, it's that bird that looks backwards. 
It's, it's the symbol of the bird has an egg on its back, and it's the mythical bird. And it looks back to retrieve the egg from its back. Sankofa literally means go back and get it. And it's used by the Akan people of Ghana to represent how they seek to carry wisdom gleaned from the past into the future. The Akan principle of Sankafa holds that it's not wrong to go back to get what you need to move forward. Reverend Denise Anderson, writing about this passage, writes with what I imagine a, a tone of a bit of frustration when she says, since the word has always been with us, it shouldn't need to prove itself. It should already be familiar to us. We've been taught righteousness for generations. Failure to respond probably won't be corrected by a sign. I can hear her just saying, it's not the new signs we need. It's not the new revelations. It's digging in to what we know God requires of us. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? She further says, to take inventory of our lives. Where have we let other values encroach upon our spiritual identity? What everyday miracles and lessons do we need to revisit before we ask for new ones, and do we welcome the Savior's authority even if it upends everything around us, even if it flips some tables? Again and again, we are shown the way, but we have to remind each other to look for the signs we've already been given to encourage one another not to give up. We have to remember the purpose of following the way of Jesus, not just for our own salvation, but for the salvation of the world, the liberation from sin, the showing forth to other bewildered pilgrims the kingdom of God in all its righteousness and truth. The showing is more important than the telling. In the funerals, I've been honored to officiate during COVID. There were just a few loved ones gathered. Sometimes only one person. And so many of those elements that we imagine will be there are missing. The soaring hymns when people sing of faith that you're trying to hang on to. The greeting line for hugs. The tea and the sandwiches that somehow make grief more bearable. The way forward for the bereaved is often unclear and feels so alone, and I show up as just a fellow pilgrim, a symbol of the whole people of God reaching back to the past and carrying Jesus' words into the present, it seems, it seems so little. But it's enough. It has to be enough. And those words so often come from later in the Gospel of John, and you know what they are. 
Don't be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My father's house has room to spare. If that weren't the case, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And when I go to prepare a place for you, I will return and take you to be with me so that where I am, you will be also. You know the way to the place where I am going. Of course, Thomas asked him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. Again and again, we have been shown the way. Amen.